Philippus FM. Throughout episodes two and three, we've been super focused on giving context to the story we're telling. Hopefully, that's helped you appreciate this myth more than you did before. In episodes five and six, we'll zero in on what this story says about the meaning of life. But first, we have to dive deep into the text and blast off into space. I'm Alex Williams. Welcome back to the Creation Stories. We're halfway through the story of the seven days of creation. In this episode, we're going to see the signs and symbols God placed in the sky. And we're going to look into some of the signs we see in the text and see what those tell us about where this story came from and what it meant. And then, of course, what it means today. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them be signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. But we notice that the, the, the cycle of the day starts in the darkness and goes through the night into the light. It's almost like the night gives birth to the day. And I just think it's lovely how there is, again, that, that interplay of, of the lightness and the darkness coming together and, and forming this whole. It's this beautiful continuation of this idea of creating order out of chaos, the night giving birth to the day. From the Christian perspective, Natasha continued. We need lightness and we need dark. The earth needs light and it needs dark. We need our dark seasons. We need our light seasons. We need nighttime. Certain things happen for the animal world and for the plant world that require darkness. We need darkness to sleep well as humans, right? The way our biorhythms work, we need that, that darkness. We need the light. So they are complementary realities. They, they have to live one with the other, light and dark, light and dark. And again, we can think of that in spiritual terms. We need times of, of darkness. And I don't mean necessarily the dark night of the soul, though we, we may need that time of feeling completely spiritually bereft. And those do happen. And that is part of, of the human spiritual experience. But we also need times of, of darkness where perhaps we don't understand, where we're just sitting with our questions, where we are waiting. And we need those. And then the light comes and something new emerges. The dark is not bad. And that is something that has creeped into a lot of, of Christian theologies. And like the darkness is bad. It isn't. It's necessary. It, it has a spiritual meaning where things that are rotten and corruptive can grow. But that can also happen and light can burn. Light can destroy. But we, we can fall into this simplistic dark, bad, destructive, light, good, generative. And it isn't that. You find both those realities in both light and dark, and that can be a way for us to unpack how we've used language of lightness and darkness in our, in our social world and, and how we look at people and how we judge and evaluate things. So again, it's amazing how far you can, these threads will go. 
I enjoyed hearing this expansion Natasha gave on the meaning behind light and dark. I mean, she's right. In most of the stories I've read, the bad guys dress in black and they work in the shadows. In Star Wars, the bad guys literally say they're on the dark side. People are afraid of the dark. In Doctor Who, there's an entire episode where shadows eat people. And although I'm not Christian, I connect deeply with this idea she shares of spiritual darkness giving birth to something new. And speaking of pulling threads, there's the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. This is something I notice myself as I've become acquainted with this story. Maybe the light is never really gone. Maybe that bit of hope is some order we can pull from this story and input into our own lives. Then he decorated them with the stars and the light of meteors and hung in it the shining sun and effulgent moon under the revolving sky, moving ceiling and rotating firmament. So I went looking through Peak of Eloquence and found another beautiful description of the creation of the sun, moon, and stars. This description comes from Sermon 90. He made its sun the bright indication for its day, and moon the gloomy indication for its night. He then put them in motion in their orbits, and ordained their pace of movement in the stages of their paths, in order to distinguish with their help between night and day, and in order that the reckoning of years and calculations may be known by their fixed movements. Then he hung in its vastness its sky, and put therein its decoration consisting of small bright pearls and lamp-like stars. He shot at the overhearers arrows of bright meteors. He put them in motion on their appointed routine, and made them into fixed stars, moving stars, descending stars, ascending stars, ominous stars, and lucky stars. Something I've learned through the process of creating this podcast is that there's a rich history, tradition, and literature that accompanies each of these three faiths. Maybe someday I'll do a deep dive into each, but alas, one thing at a time. Here's Cantor Russ with The Jewish Perspective. Then, having begun to order everything below the sky, God goes back up into the sky for the fourth day. And this is where we have the sun, the moon, and the stars. There has been this idea of cycling between light and dark, which God made on the first day. But how is it that the animals and the plants and later humans that are going to be part of this grand structure, how are they going to be able to discern these cycles with any type of exactness and surety? Well, God puts signs in the sky so that the waters in the sky become more oriented, the light in the sky becomes more oriented, and the chaos of the waters and the light above the firmament are brought more into control. And so the sun comes, and the moon comes, and the stars come, and they are specifically, as it says in the Torah, to mark the difference between times and season. Because we have this cycling of light and darkness, but we need to be more exact because sooner or later we're going to have to determine, well, when does something begin or something end? And if it's just this nebulous light and this nebulous darkness that are cycling, that's not going to mean anything to the animals, the plants, and the humans. So we have to have definite signs and symbols in the sky to help the creation discern the order 
that is going on. And so God makes the moon and the sun and the stars. The way Cantor Russ describes the events of the fourth day gives a little foreshadowing for what's coming next, the animals and the humans. This ties back to what Imam Saeed said last episode about the earth being like a cradle for us, and what Natasha's shared about the earth being like a womb that gives birth to life. It seems like this whole story is leading up to something, leading to humanity, you and me. But before we get there, let's transition from the signs and symbols we see in the sky to what we see in the text. Imagine you travel back to 1878. You go with a fully charged tablet that has your favorite film downloaded onto it. You sit down with a couple friends you make and show the film to them. They're sure to be impressed, right? Not just by the tablet, but by the movie. And not just by the moving pictures, but by whatever value you yourself derive from the movie. Basically, the reason it's your favorite. Even if we set aside the changes in the language of your chosen film, their lack of context will keep them from a full appreciation of the work. Take one of my favorites, for example. One line in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is, I think it's a Banksy. It made sense to me sitting in the theater, but that'd be meaningless to someone in the 19th century. They don't know what a Banksy is. They also wouldn't understand the references to the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films, the context of the animation style, or why it's not really important to me that no one can actually, in real life, shoot webs out of their wrists. So, we've talked about other ancient Near Eastern mythologies, and about literary analysis in general. Now let's get into the specifics of how we make the distinction between the seven days of creation and the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. For that, we have Dr. Josh with us again. Maybe working our way backwards from now, I mean, I mean, now we have Genesis, we have, we have the book of Genesis, and it is written, however it's, it's written, it has the, the, the first creation story as the seven days of creation, and then there is this more anthropomorphized God in the second creation story of Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden. So we have, we have that now. At what point do you know when that story, when that organization came to be like that? Yeah, so that's the $65,000 question, right? Uh, right. And, and if you talk to someone who specializes in this, somebody like Joel Baden, he'll probably just decline to say, uh, you know, with any specificity, dates for these for these sources. So, you know, maybe to paint the picture for everyone, traditionally, and I mean, again, you know, before, certainly before the 18th century, when people started looking at the narrative more closely and noticing that there were inconsistencies and doublets and contradictions in these, uh, in the Pentateuch, there was this idea, and again, it, it remains in some evangelical circles, that, you know, Moses, you know, was the single author of the five books, you know, that are you know, referred to by his name. Of course, this is, again, completely gone by the wayside. This single authorship is, is just no more. It's not, it's not held in academic circles, save for, again, a very few holdouts. So because of that, then the question arose, how did this thing form? How did this thing come to its canonical form? And it, you know, I'm sure that you know this, your audience knows this. We don't have any quote unquote originals of the Hebrew Bible. We don't have any like 
you know, originals of Genesis. What we have are much later manuscripts that represent a period in the transmission of the text where it had become canonized, right? It had, you know, it, 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 it had come to its final form. And so, you know, what we have to do, what scholars have to do is look at that final form and to try to say, okay, based on what we see, how did this thing come together? And a good example that I think that I like to give is if you come to a house that maybe was built back in the 50s, but it's got what appear to be additions put on, like maybe there's a new front porch or maybe this there's an extension. There are ways that you can look at this final form of the building. And when you look at it closely, you can see, okay, well, you know, this is a different kind of framing, different kind of construction that's being put on this edition. And it's something that we know didn't develop until the early 2000s or something. And, and this is more, you know, this lumber is much newer. Uh, so the construction style, you know, it doesn't seem to fit quite right. It doesn't flow with the rest of the, the, you know, the architecture of the building. And so what you can do is by looking at the final form, you can say this part came first and is, you know, a, a cohesive unit. And then this part looks like it was added later. And then this other part looks like it was added on on the side at a later time. And so, you know, that that's how, you know, scholars work at the Hebrew Bible. The question is, how did it get pieced together? The school of thought that has been around since, you know, somebody like Fellhausen uh, is called the documentary hypothesis. And essentially what it says is you have independent sources, full, full length, or mostly full length, entire versions of the stories. And th they stand alone by themselves. And then at a, a later time, an editor comes along and brings them together and, and creates this final form. And so it was posited based on a number of factors, mostly that, you know, based on the narrative, that you had four sources, four independent sources, J, E, D, and P. J for the Yahwist source, E for the Eloist source, D for the Deuteronomistic source, and then P for the Priestly source. And that these were brought together either all at once or two were brought together and then a third was brought in. And then, you know, there are different ways to think about it. But it's, it's these four independent sources that are being brought together. The other way that is a much more European approach is this idea that you had smaller stories that were sort of clumped together into a cycle. So like this is the Abrahamic cycle, this is the Isaac cycle, this is the Jacob cycle. They're brought together in this sort of broad Genesis form. And then you have the Exodus tradition that's sort of connected to it. And there are these layers that are put in between sort of like mortar to, to affix two bricks together, you know, to make them into a cohesive unit. And then that unified whole later on undergoes its own redaction in order to change its theological teachings, leanings, whatever. And so layers are added throughout to, to shape it and to develop it so that it says what that editor wants it to say. And then later that edited form was again edited. And so you have this layering process. So do you have four independent sources that are brought together roughly at the same time or close to the same time, maybe? Uh, do you have sort of bulks of material that are brought together with 
layers in between, and then those are reshaped and reshaped again. That's the debate. And every like that's fierce. That debate is fierce. But what all of those people agree on is two, two things primarily. One, that there are at least two sources, two types of material. There's P material, priestly material, and then there's other stuff. And they very inventively called it non-P, non-priestly <laughs> material. So you have P and non-P. Everybody agrees on that. So, you know, Genesis 1 is P material. Genesis 2 to 3 would be non-P material. Everybody agrees on that. The other thing is they all agree that it's not written by one author and certainly not by Moses. If you want to deep dive on who wrote the Bible, Matt Baker on his Useful Charts YouTube channel has created an incredible series going into depth on that. I'll link that in the show notes. Now, in episode one, Cantor Russ mentioned the difference in how each myth refers to God. In the first story, God is referred to exclusively as Elohim, the Hebrew word for God in general, which can refer not only to our God, but also to any God, uh, because Judaism of, in the Torah, we are not specifically monotheistic, so we, at least at that point. So we have the word for just God in general, Elohim. That's how God is addressed in the first creation story, the seven days of creation. But then in the second creation story with the Garden of Eden, God is referred to as Adonai Elohim, which implies a sense of intimacy. This demonstrates beautifully how stories can be written to emphasize different aspects of a theology. So I was wondering if that's how we tell these two stories come from different sources. A deep, deep dive into the methodology of all of this is definitely outside of the scope of the podcast. That said, can you give a little bit of an overview, just for a general audience, of how these things are put together? I mean, how do we figure this sort of thing out? There's sort of a misnomer. If you think about why it is that those sources are called J, E, D, and P, it's because source one tends to use the name Yahweh. And when it refers to the deity, source E tends to use the word Elohim. So, you know, J for Yahweh, the German J for the English, you know, Y, E for Elohim. D is the Deuteronomist. So it mostly is the book of Deuteronomy. And then P is priestly material. And it seems to be that there are, you know, things that have to do with priests or purity or those sorts of things. Well, the critique that they level against it is that, oh, so anywhere you guys just do this by saying, well, anywhere it says Yahweh, that must be the Yahweh source. And anywhere it says Elohim, that must be the Elohist source. And that doesn't work because of X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, that, but that's not how they do it. And I think that's critical. So to kind of go back to our building example, if you, you came up on a house or on a building and you saw that you know, there was a certain type of construction, and let's say you had... Uh, wood framing, and then on this this addition that sort of jutted out, it seemed it had you know metal studs. Well, that's a that's a big thing that shows inconsistency, and you find out that most of the the places where you have these metal studs, you also have screws being used, right? And so you might call this like the screw addition. It's not the screws that are giving it away. It's just that it seems like in this edition, wherever you have metal studs, you have screws. That doesn't mean that if you go into the place where there's wood framing and you see that they use a couple of screws here and there, that, ah, this must be 
part of the screw addition. Well, no, they just used screws there. It's the it's the metal studs that tell you this is an addition. It's just that you know the metal studs in that addition. It seems like they primarily use screws. Well, the same is true uh, in the Pentateuch. So when they looked at the text, they noticed, well, gosh, here in Genesis one, the narrative and the writing style is like so completely different. You know, like for example, uh, a really clear example of this is in Genesis one, you have the animals being created first. And then after the animals are created, at the end of the creation week, you have humanity being created and they're created together. Well, in Genesis 2, toward the beginning of the creation story, you have Adam, you know, the man being created. And then only after that, for a specific purpose, the animals are created. And then only after that purpose isn't fulfilled, trying to find a partner for Adam, is Eve created. So the order is completely different. The purpose is different. I mean, it's just... Like th th there's a flat contradiction between these two accounts. And so scholars noticed, okay, well, look, we have these narrative inconsistencies between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That's how they divided out the Pentateuch based on the narrative inconsistencies. And so like when you go to something like the flood story, it's very clear in Genesis 6 through 9 that you have two different commands to you know, build the boat or two different commands to enter the ark or two different, you have these doublets throughout and once they separated those out based on the narrative, then they noticed that, oh, this type of vocabulary seems to be consistent with this source. And this other type of vocabulary is consistent with this source. It doesn't mean that the LOS never uses Yahweh or you know something to that effect, but it's just that, that they, they break it apart based on the narrative. And so, so, but what ended up happening as time went by, again, going back to our or a building analogy, if I started making a list of all the things that show up most commonly in the addition and a separate list for the building materials that seem to show up most commonly in the, the main structure, the original structure, you would find a list like screws would be on that list. And you would say, okay, most of the time, if you see a screw, it's probably going to come from the addition. And it, it, I guess it would be you know, the same way that if you had two jars and they were both filled with jelly beans and jar number one had almost all black jelly beans, but it had five orange jelly beans in it. And then the other jar had almost so, so thousands of orange jelly beans, but five black jelly beans. Well, if I didn't tell you and I picked a, a jelly bean out and it was an orange one, but I didn't tell you which jar it came from, probably is coming from the orange, mostly orange-filled jelly bean jar, but not of necessity. And so what started happening is people would make these lists and they would say, well, anywhere Elohim is used, anywhere that, you know, the word shifcha is used or anywhere the word ama is used or whatever, these different Hebrew words, these are words that are very common to these sources. Well, people started taking those lists and started using them as uh, like prescriptive. Okay, well, anywhere we see shifcha, then this must be X source. And, and so then they started, you know, well, that means that these two, you know, lines must be E and this half of a line and this must be J. And it's like, wait, 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 that's, that's not how this works. Yeah, it's that those are important things to realize, I think. Okay, so basically the use of the different language throughout the text is a good indicator as to which source that portion comes from, but it's not definitive. So don't go out splitting up the Bible and saying this is from this and this is from this. 
It's just something we see commonly in those areas. Now, this pretty much concludes our academic look at this creation story. So for the rest of the story, we're going to focus on what it means for us, looking at what our purpose is, according to the story, and now that we have all this context for why this story was so important when it was first shared, we're going to look at why this story matters to us today. I know these past few episodes have been super focused on giving context, and that might not be everyone's thing. Regardless, I hope the context has broadened your appreciation for this myth. I know it's given me a greater appreciation for it. Now, this project has taken hundreds of hours for me to complete, and hours of effort from others to make this show what it is. So, I'll invite you to stick around for the credits. First, a massive thank you goes to those who support my work on Patreon. If you'd like to become a supporter, it's the first link in the show notes. You'll get a thank you postcard from me from wherever I happen to be at the time, and a bunch of bonus content as well, including uncut interviews, some commentary, and some bonus content from my other projects as well. The Creation Stories is a production of Polytropus FM. I, Alex Williams, wrote, produced, hosted, and edited this episode. Our guests include Cantor Russell Jane, Imam Saeed Hassan, the Reverend Natasha Brubaker Garrison, and Dr. Joshua Bowen. If you'd like to get in touch with any of our guests, see their work, or support them, I've put links in the show notes. Specifically, Dr. Josh has recently published the Atheist Handbook to the Old Testament, which I think will broaden your appreciation for these stories regardless of your background. And if you're in the Calgary area, I highly recommend you visit calgaryinterfaithcouncil.org to see how you can get involved in the interfaith community here. There will also be updates available there on the upcoming UN World Interfaith Harmony Week. Special thank you to Rob Faulkner, Matt Baker, Dalton Harding, and the Calgary Interfaith Council for connecting me with guests and additional resources. Thank you to Garrett Vandenberg for creating our theme music. He's also done the original music for My Wax Museum and Polytropus, so I highly recommend you check out his work. And thank you to Bethany Gustafson for our show cover art. A full list of sources and credits can be found in the show notes. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode.